Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature. For Tech Stuff listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is The Singularity is Near, When Humans Transcend Biology by Ray Kurzweil. Kurzweil explores a future where man and machine are one and the same. Tech Stuff is fascinated by the idea of singularity, and this is a great book to learn more about it. The Singularity is Near, When Humans Transcend Biology by Ray Kurzweil. Available from Audible. To try Audible free today and get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash techstuff. That's audiblepodcast.com slash techstuff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, a guy who used to be an adventurer like you until he took an arrow to the knee, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. The sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. It's good, okay. right? Yeah. Okay. So um, before we get started, we're going to do something we haven't done in a little while. Oh, no. Yeah. We're going to listen to a little listener mail. This listener mail comes from Minka, who says, I love your podcast and have enjoyed listening to your insightful and quirky explanations immensely. I tried to search through the past podcast to see if you had done one on radio telescopes to no avail, so I hope I didn't just miss it. It seems to me that radio telescopes are being used frequently to learn about this and study the far reaches of the galaxy and beyond, and that's pretty darn cool, so it'd be neat to learn more about how they work. Thanks, and thanks for the show, Minka. Well, you're welcome, Minka. I just wanted to say you're welcome. All right, so now we're moving on to our topic, the Smurfs. <laughs> no, no, we're going to talk about radio uh, telescopes that today. Was good. Yeah, um, we sort of, well, we've talked about things that relate to radio telescopes. Yeah, like radio. And SETI. Yes, and SETI. SETI, which does very much uh, relate to radio telescopes. Well, well, yeah. Well, what do radio telescopes do? Why are they important? Well, it's funny that you should mention that. Yeah. Because they're... I, 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 my notes crashed, so I don't know what I'm your, talking about. Your anymore. notes crashed? No, I'm, not, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they're still up. He can't see my computer from where he sits. Yes, because he's sitting directly across from me. Yes. See, if, if you ever wondered if that was true or not, it is. Yeah. Um, no, it's uh, it's actually using... It's unlike a, a typical visual telescope. Right. Uh, which uses lenses and your eyeball, and you look through it. And you look for stuff on yeah, the other side in it, space. It directs light, which is in the visible spectrum of the electromagnetic frequency. Yes. To our uh, to our eyeballs, ultimately. Right. Right. But um, and uh, yet again, another drastic oversimplification on my yes. part. Yes. But a radio telescope is actually uh, monitoring different parts of the electromagnetic frequency. Yeah. Yeah. It's good looking at a completely different spectrum. So this is part of the spectrum that is not visible to the naked eye. Uh, so we are using these telescopes. To to measure um, radio frequency variations that uh, come from outer space. And it turns out that lots of stuff out there generates radio frequencies, right? Yep. yep. So things like quasars, pulsars, galaxies, uh, uh, distant stars, these sort of things can generate uh, electromagnetic radiation and mm-hmm. uh, in the form of, of radio frequencies. And sometimes these are... are uh, objects that we can't detect 
visually, but we can detect them if we have a sensitive enough uh, uh, tool that can can uh, detect and measure uh, um, radio frequencies. So that's really what a radio telescope is all about. And it's kind of tricky picking up radio frequencies from outer space because only certain the, – the actual band of frequencies or wavelengths, I should say, the yes. band of wavelengths that exist within the electromagnetic spec- magnetic spectrum that are radio frequency waves, it's pretty broad. Yeah, about uh, 10 meters – and to one millimeter. That's a, a pretty good size. Yeah, you can actually get radio waves that are even longer than that, like the size of football fields. But here's the thing is that the Earth has a, a level of the atmosphere called the ionosphere. Mm-hmm. Now, the ionosphere is uh, it's kind of funky. So uh, you guys probably have heard us talk about ions before. You know, that's when we're talking about uh, uh, atoms that have either gained or lost an electron and if you ionize something, that means you've got some free electrons roaming around in it. So like an ionized gas or a plasma uh, can actually hold, carry an electric charge, right? Yes. Why are you smiling at me? I, just because I saw a whole bunch of people going, woohoo, free electrons. Oh, yeah. I'm Finally, sorry. It was- they're so expensive otherwise. That's true. Have you seen my electric bill? Anyway, so you have the ionosphere where sorry. there are these free roaming electrons out there and, uh, and it kind of acts mm-hmm. as a bit of a, a, um, a shield or a reflector in, in some ways. And so radio waves of a certain wavelength, cannot pass through the ionosphere. Essentially, anything that's 10 meters or longer, the ionosphere is opaque to those. That's why you can actually broadcast certain uh, long wavelength radio waves uh, and bank them off the ionosphere right. because it, it won't pass through. Mm-hmm. Now, when you start getting shorter than a 10-meter wavelength, uh, you have radio waves that can pass through the ionosphere, but... If it's longer than 20 centimeters, which is about 1.5 gigahertz in frequency when you talk about these, if it's longer than 20 centimeters, you start to uh, have distortion as that passes through the ionosphere. It's called scintillation. Mm -hmm. And this isn't that different from the way when we look up into the sky and we see stars twinkling. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the same sort of thing we talk about being scintillating. Same kind of idea, except in this case, you know, that's, we're talking about the visual uh, spectrum there. Uh, but here, yeah, the at 20 centimeters or longer, you run into that problem. And so that's not entirely useful for measurement purposes. So radio telescopes tend to focus on, pun intended, uh, wavelengths that are between one centimeter and 20 centimeters in length. Tend to. Now, there are some variations. And also, if you were to have a radio telescope, say, in orbit, where it's, it, you know, you don't have the ionosphere as a, a in play, um, that's a different story. But ground-based radio telescopes kind of have to play within these rules because of the way the ionosphere works. One of the nice things, though, about the radio telescope is that uh, th- those frequencies generally come through pretty clearly. So uh, putting one of the ground-based radio telescopes in orbit really wouldn't improve its ability to detect signals. Um, at least based on my research. Yeah, not, not within anything that's within those wavelengths. Yeah. Actually, it's, it's a little tricky to detect that stuff anyway, because we're talking about really weak signals. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the time they, they reach the earth, the, these signals are not very strong at all. In fact, uh, one, one reference I, I looked at said that, um, uh, that if you were to add up all the energy that every radio telescope on earth had been subjected to since they were built, 
it would, still would not equal the energy you would find in the snowflake. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty impressive, actually. Yeah. Now, granted, that snowflake is the size of Detroit. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, um, typical snowflake. No, uh, and it is also worthwhile to note, especially before anyone writes in, um, that radio telescopes do have to be placed away from population centers in general uh, to some degree to – because there is earthly interference. Yeah, there's terrestrial radio interference that you have to try and minimize as much as possible. Otherwise, uh, it's just so much noise that you're not going to even find any signal out there. Right, right. So – um, yeah, it has its it has its good points and and its bad points simply because of the uh, the frequencies it's uh, able to monitor. And it's a good point too that you uh, you mentioned the from the very first because these these devices. I mean, I I imagine people you know have a good idea what radio telescopes look like. I mean, uh, we've all seen satellite dishes, and yeah. to some degree, that's more or less what they look like. Yeah. In fact, you may have seen pictures of them, but um, that I think gives it the uh, the sort of feeling that it's a, a fairly recent thing. And in fact, um, it was somebody in uh, 1933 who, who figured out that um, there was uh, there were radio frequencies coming from uh, extraterrestrial bodies. Uh, someone at, of course, Bell Telephone Laboratories. Yes, laboratories. <laughs> you always do that. I, I, I can't fight it. I can't fight this feeling anymore. I can't. <laughs> But yes, uh, so you're talking about Carl. Carl Jansky. Carl Jansky, yes. Uh, he, he, he built the first antenna that could be used as a radio telescope back in 1931, but it would take a couple of years to really figure out, uh, the fact that you could use this to, to, uh, explore the, the heavens above. Because when he built his radio frequency detector, it was not to act as a radio telescope. No. It was meant to detect static that could potentially interfere with radio telephone services. Right, right. So he was he was working literally on a project for Bell. Yeah. And what happened was he discovered that there was this interesting hissing noise he was picking up and it was hitting a cycle. Uh the the hissing noise would would uh occur at a certain time every day and, and the cycle hit well not every day. The cycle hit every 23 hours and 56 minutes. And once he removed the snake from the line, yeah, no, no. he realized there was something else hissing. He figured out that the 23 hours and 56 minutes was essentially the period that it takes for, uh, if you've, if you've got a fixed point on the sky, uh, for the, you to come back around so that you're pointing at that same object. This and will come up again later. Eventually, he <laughs> determined that this was, uh, uh, the, the, the origin of this radio frequency mm-hmm. was otherworldly. Mm-hmm. So it was coming from outside the earth. And that it was, in fact, coming from somewhere in the Sagittarius constellation. Far out. Yeah. No, so, really, far out. So uh, it would take a few more years before you st- saw anyone build a parabolic antenna, which is what Chris was talking about earlier, the dish-style antennas. Right. Uh, those are not the only kind of antennas that are used in radio telescopes. It's the, probably, I would argue, probably the most iconic and the most common right, that right. We, we see. But there are other types of antennas, including dipole antennas, cylindrical parabolics, which are they kind of look like a, a trough. Uh, there are the Yagi antennas, which are um, not little guys who teach wax you on, how to you know, use uh, kung fu or karate, I should say. Uh, there are horn antennas, there are Mills crosses, that kind of stuff, Mills crosses telescopes, um, various ways of doing this. But the principle is essentially the same. It's to try and gather, to detect and gather as much of uh, radio frequency um, uh, radiation as possible. And, and usually there are several reflectors involved. 
that reflect radio frequencies to a focal point that can then send the signal to a receiver. Mm-hmm. And then from there it gets amplified. And we'll go through that process in a little bit. But uh, so in, our, in the parabolic style of, of antenna, this is why you have that big dish. The dish part is actually reflecting um, frequencies so that they all are directed to a single focal point. Mm-hmm. And that's usually called the feed. It's a, usually a small antenna called the feed that uh, is often called the feed horn that will collect the signal and send it to the receiver. Ah, yes. So mm. these no. these radio frequencies are, like we said, generated by lots of different stuff out there in the uh, in the in space. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but the problem is that the, the they're so so delicate. They're so such tiny little frequencies that you have to really control for the noise element, not just by trying to isolate the antenna a bit, but uh, also by making sure the material you've used in your um, antenna array is the right kind of stuff because uh, uh, they're pretty sensitive things. And also the amount of information you can get is very much uh, connected to the size of your antenna. Bigger antennas are able to provide a higher resolution image. It's kind of a weird word to say because we're not talking about visible light necessarily, but an image of what it is you're looking at, right? So, yeah. So the larger, the better in general. But if you start building so large that the material itself is heavy enough to warp because it's, it's, it's so heavy that, uh, the, the structure itself can't maintain a specific shape. Well, then you're not reflecting the radio frequencies to that focal point anymore. You've warped it out of shape. So you have to build it out of special materials and you have to plan for, okay, well, uh, we know that by designing an antenna of this size, this particular warping is going to occur. So we have to factor that into the design mm-hmm. so that the warping actually ends up helping rather than hurting. And usually you do that by adding a second reflector that is, uh, that's movable. So you can have a second reflector actually, um, positioned in such a way where the distortion from the main reflector hits the second reflector, which then reflects it back to the focal point. Mm-hmm. So it gets a little complicated. In fact, there are two main types of secondary reflectors. There's the uh, Cassegrain Focus, which is uh, a reflector that's in front of the main antenna, or the main reflector, I should say. And then there's another one. Uh, if you have it in the back, it's called Gregorian Focus, and it chants a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. Yeah, there was a pretty good chance. Uh, yeah, it's possible. Um, now, given what, what Jonathan was just talking about, given the materials and, and the uh, – uh, there are a lot of things that, that can affect uh, the efficiency of uh, a radio telescope, sure. including heat yeah, or cold. You, yeah, you know. because the, the materials will expand or contract. Right, right. Wind. The surface of the, the material itself, the surface of the material yep. itself. Um, but other than that, I mean, w- once you take all these things into account, it is theoretically possible to build as large a radio telescope as you possibly can. There is really no limit to the size other than the fact that you're going to have to take things like gravity and temperature and things like that into account. Tensile strength. But uh, conceivably, if you could build one that's three times the size of Earth, it would work. Yeah. Uh, but that and that's fascinating because it's it's not uh, it doesn't have to be a, a particularly large or a particularly small device. It just 
you know, you can pick up more with it. And a lot of, uh, larger. a lot of radio telescopes are actually telescope, like antenna arrays. So it's not just one antenna, it's several antennas working together in order for you to gather this information. Teamwork. Uh, yeah. That's what I say. <laughs> and that, that helps you create a larger radio telescope just by, you know, you're adding a- extra elements in it. It means that you, sort of get around part of the problem, which is, you know, building just an enormous single antenna. You can do an array of antennas. There are different limitations on this as well. Um, so the signal that you're picking up with this radio telescope is really, really weak. Mm-hmm. So in order for you to have it uh, and to, to transmit, uh, first you have to, you, you have to transfer the radio frequency information by, by changing it into electricity. But because the frequency signal is so weak, the electric current would be pretty pathetic. You would not be able to measure it uh, just by converting it right from radio frequency to electricity without amplifying it in some way. Yeah. So typically, a radio telescope will then have a pre-amplifier. So you uh, musicians out there hmm. and, and, and radio folks, you know, you're probably pretty familiar with the idea of a pre-amplifier. Microphones usually have a pre-amplifier, that kind of thing. Um, so... A preamplifier is really just a, a, a way of boosting a signal a certain amount before it gets truly amplified uh, for the final use of whatever that signal is going to be, whether it's in the, the audio industry or, in this case, the uh, measuring the celestial bodies. Yeah. I, w- I was going to say that they don't necessarily usually have them, but anyway. Um, well, that's that's fair. But it does it does assist. Um, yeah. In, in picking up these weak signals, that's for sure. Yeah, and so the kind that tends to be used in radio telescopes are called low noise amplifiers because we're talking about such small, yeah, very, very quiet signals. And so, um, boy, I'm, I'm glad I didn't do the old listener mail yeah. at the beginning because then it, with all this, it would have mm. probably blown everybody's ears out. So the, the, uh, these LNA preamplifiers take these, um, uh, signals and then they boost them. Now, here's the thing. Any sort of interference at this point could really compromise the measurements you're making. So that includes molecular movement of the preamp. So the fact that, you know, everything uh, in matter is made up of molecules and these molecules move even in solid objects, right? Yes. So they, in, in a, in big, Radio telescope uh, facilities, things like the professional ones like you would find in, say, NASA, they tend to have to cool down the preamplifier to reduce molecular movement as much as possible, and usually to around 10 Kelvin. That's uh, pretty cold. Pretty cold, yeah. Zero Kelvin means no molecular movement. That's what like the deepest reaches of space would be, is zero Kelvin. So 10 Kelvin's pretty cold. They tend to use liquid helium to cool down the this this uh, device low enough so that it reduces the chance for it to contribute noise to this signal. All right, from there, the signal moves into a mixer. Yes. Where it has a party and networks with people. and Not that kind of mixer. Uh-oh. Should have taken different notes. Okay, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll just work from memory here then. Um, no, a mixer, well, the, the mixer's purpose is to change the frequency of the signal. Now, these signals are very high frequency, and uh, and it turns out that it's easier to amplify lower frequencies. It's possible to amplify higher frequencies, but it, in general, it takes less uh, uh, effort to amplify the lower frequency signals. And if it's kept at its high frequency and you're just you're you're working with the frequency at that at its native 
frequency, there's the chance that it'll travel back up the antenna and create feedback. It's not dissimilar to what would happen with a microphone too close to a speaker where you get that wonderful sound. That's not wonderful. No, you're you're probably more familiar with it than I am yes. with your rock and roll lifestyle and all. Rock and roll lifestyle. So uh, then what, what happens is the mixer mixes this frequency. Not ju- It doesn't just lower – the way it lowers this frequency is it mixes the frequency with a frequency generated by an oscillator. Mm-hmm. Okay, So the oscillator creates two frequencies that are both sent into the mixer. And uh, one is they're, – they're polar opposites of each other. And so the, the um, mixer adds in the lower frequency together – uh, with the frequency that came in through the receiver. Mm-hmm. And that is what it sends out to the intermediate frequency amplifier. So we've gone preamp to mixer. Mixer pulls in a second frequency from the oscillator. The oscillator frequency, the lower one, gets combined with the incoming frequency. That is then sent to the intermediate frequency amplifier, or IF amplifier. Mm-hmm. And that just processes that signal and amplifies it. And we've talked about amplifiers before in this podcast, so I'm not going to get into that. Uh, and then this, this stronger signal from the IF amplifier gets sent to, well, now we got to go to the square law detectors and the DC processors. Okay. Because we have to create a DC, a direct current, uh, in order for that to go to a recording device. Mm-hmm. So this converts the frequency from the amplifier to direct current signals, and it smooths out the signals to make them easier to measure because they fluctuate quite a bit. Even as direct current, they tend to fluctuate. So the way they do this is they use capacitors. And if you recall, we've talked about capacitors before, too. Capacitors store up electricity and then release it all at once. Right, they're mm-hmm. they're kind of like a battery in that it can store electricity, but unlike a battery, it is and it releases all the electricity. It doesn't do a, a constant flow. Right. Uh, this, by the way, is the reason why it's a bad idea to fiddle around with electronics you don't know a lot about, including things like televisions and computers, even when they're unplugged, because they have capacitors in them that can store high amounts of electricity that are potentially deadly. Yes. So especially things like computers and televisions, you don't want to, you know, just knock a hole in one or, you know, I've seen like videos. If you've ever seen a video of someone who who accidentally breaks a television, you see a spark go off. That's a capacitor that's that's discharging. Right. And those can be very dangerous. So anyway, uh, in this case, the capacitors are used to kind of smooth out those signals. Uh, I have read an interesting analogy, which said, imagine that you have a water hose. And water is moving through the hose, but the pressure keeps changing. So the water sometimes is flowing out very quickly and sometimes it's sputtering out. Yeah. Okay? Uh, in the case of this detecting radio frequencies, you want a, a steady um, flow so that you can measure it properly. So what if you were to, instead of just measure the, measuring the water that comes out of the hose, you, you uh, direct the hose toward a bucket. Okay? okay. And at the base of the bucket, there's a spigot. That you can open up. Well, if you open up the spigot on the bucket, water is going to flow out at a much more steady rate than it's flowing out of the hose. That's the kind of idea here with the capacitor in that it's to try and smooth out that signal and make it easier to record. And then finally, you've got the actual recording device. Now, in the old days, the recording device was a uh, an old man who said, what was that? No, it was actually a pen attached to a, a movable arm. And some paper that was pulled across, 
And then the movable arm would, would move depending upon changes in voltage. And so it was very similar to uh, uh, earthquake detecting equipment. We've yeah. talked about seismological equipment in the past where you see that, or even if you think also a similar thing is uh, uh, lie detectors. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, polygraphs where they have the little, the little uh, pen that scratches back and forth across the paper as the paper's going by. Similar kind of thing. Um, now where you were on October 14th. Yeah. So we tell you. <laughs> When did you go supernova? Um, no, so this, in this case, instead what it's doing is it's actually, uh, modern ones don't tend to use this anymore. They tend to actually send the data directly to a computer where it gets recorded and you read out the information on a computer screen as opposed to looking at a physical representation scratched out in pen. Um, that's generally how the radio telescope works from start to finish. So it's, Pretty interesting stuff. It's a little complex, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, one of the the things that uh, we were talking about too, Jonathan mentioned um, the Jansky's experiments, where he was he would note that the interference would come around at a certain period of time. Um, one of the prime places to put a radio telescope is uh, near the equator. Yes, um, because it is a really good. Um, it's a really good place to get an accurate uh, depiction as the Earth rotates. Yep. Um, and it can it can identify sources of radio information coming from space. Yep. Very clearly. Um, unfortunately, it's a rather expensive place to try to build a radio telescope. So yeah. that's one of the reasons why they can be found in, in many different places around the world. But yeah, closer to the equator tends to be better just for the you know the quality of information you can get from this. Um, and and uh, we've actually started using radio telescopes to kind of map out the celestial bodies around us, even ones that are not visible to the naked eye. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been very useful for astronomers. And there's still there's still even you know. Uh, Amateur astronomers who use radio telescopes. These, this, it's not just the realm of massive scientific organizations like NASA. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, those are the ones that, you know, if you look up the pictures online, you tend to see the really large arrays or really large antennas that belong to these major organizations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, a radio telescope is able to detect things, uh, celestial bodies in the sky by uh, their angular resolution. Um, basically, it, it it really is contingent on the wavelengths that it is able to detect. So that's one of the reasons why um, a radio telescope does need to be large. Um, yeah, if you, you could build a small one, but it wouldn't be nearly as functional as a larger one. Uh, basically, the larger a radio telescope is, the the greater its angular resolution. Yeah. Um, but um, that that's basically uh, that's basically what it is what what it's using in terms of how you would measure the effectiveness of a radio telescope. Right, right. Um, yeah, if you you know if you had like a backyard telescope, visual telescope. Yeah. Uh, the resolution you would get on that is equivalent to what you would get uh, with a a huge radio telescope. The resolution on a radio telescope is proportional to its size. So. Um, yeah, you, you got to have a big one if you're going to have any any real precise resolution. And again, we're not you know it's it's a little weird because it's hard to think of resolution in terms of something other than visible light because that's what yes. we're mostly familiar with. Mm-hmm. But um, but yes, it's it still applies in this case. Yep, yep. Um, and radio, uh, basically, radio astronomers have been able to 
detect all kinds of different uh, molecules in space too. Um, you can, you might be surprised to learn. I, I was a little surprised to learn that radio uh, radio astronomers were able to identify carbon dioxide, water, formaldehyde, uh, ethyl alcohol, methanol, ammonia, um, and all kinds of other different kinds of uh, I just said kinds twice of compounds out in space, mm-hmm. um, and and. To use the the radio telescope in that way, I mean, it's you can get a lot of information, and that's actually uh, sort of ties back into the SETI project, because the uh, if if you haven't listened to that particular podcast or are unfamiliar with the uh, the project, basically, um, astronomers were collecting large amounts of data from the radio telescope they were using um, for their project, and mm-hmm. the thing is, their computers couldn't analyze it. All at one time, they were ca- collecting so much that it was just stacking up, essentially. Yeah, not, not literally, but to, figuratively. To create an analogy, uh, we've talked about in the past how on YouTube users are uploading 48 hours of content every uh, every minute. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like telling one person to watch everything that's on YouTube. You you've got uh, you've got a growing amount of content that you're never going to catch up to, and only so much ability to consume it. So same sort of thing. In this case, we're talking about generating. Uh, incredible amounts of data and having a limited ability to actually analyze that information. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what they would do was to break it down and use it in a uh, distributed computing project, which they were calling SETI at Home, mm-hmm. and uh, the idea being that people take a slice of information, uh, allow their computers to work it out using a, a specially designed program, and send it back to the astronomers so that they could evaluate it and add it to the project. And, uh, you know, it's just sort of a uh, kind of a neat way to, to get into uh, helping out with a project like that. But that's that's one of the uh, problems, a, a good problem to have with, with radio astronomy is that these uh, large radio telescopes can, con- can collect an awful lot of data. Yeah, and so we might use them to discover things like uh, quasars or pulsars that we had never seen before, or even detect the presence of a galaxy that before this point we just didn't know existed. Uh, now, SETI, of course, was really looking for any sort of signals that might indicate uh, a pattern or uh, uh, a possible, um, well, possible hint that there's some sort of other intelligent life out there that's generating these signals, not not just some natural phenomenon. Do, 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 do. <laughs> well, um, and radio radio telescopes can also detect uh, information about near celestial bodies as well. Yeah. Uh, the surface for the moon. We knew it was sort of sandy before people actually landed there because uh, astronomers had used radio telescopes to... Uh, to get signals from the moon and, and learn, uh, you know, what it was like there. Also, uh, Venus, you know, is shrouded by clouds, but astronomers are able to learn more about the surface by using radi- radio telescopes and, and radar yeah. to get an idea of what the the actual planet's surface is. Well, they've also like. used it to uh, observe the storms on Jupiter. So that's kind of interesting too. Like, you I know, figured they just looked at the weather report for Jupiter. Right today. Yeah. Today it's going to be a storms. bit gassy. Mm. Sounds like my. Never mind. Never um, mind. Yes, let's, let's leave that. Okay. 
But yeah, I think uh, it's it's an interesting topic. It's really and it's one honestly I did not know very much about before we started researching this podcast. No, I agree with you. I mean, I I knew of it, I knew it existed, but I didn't really understand what it was doing or how it did it. And it is pretty cool. I mean, it just shows me that radio is way cooler than I ever imagined. When I you know <laughs> you sit there, you turn a radio on. That's the, that's the extent of your. Maybe you play with a walkie-talkie, but that's about it as far as radio goes. And then the more you look into it, the more you're like, wow, this is really phenomenal stuff. Tesla was onto something. I was going to say, he probably had a patent for that. Yeah, I probably did. And then, never mind. I'm not going to go into another Tesla rant. Okay, then. All right. Well, that wraps up this discussion. Minka, thank you so much for writing in and suggesting that. That was a really cool topic for us to tackle. If any of you have a, a topic you would like us to look at in a future episode of Tech Stuff, you can let us know on Twitter or Facebook. Our handle there is TechStuffHSW, and I promise we're going to have a new email for you soon. We just haven't created that new email address on our new email platform. Um, you can try sending it to the old one, but there's no guarantee it'll get to us. But as soon as we have a new one. I'll let you guys know. So that'll wrap this up, and Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. To try Audible free today and get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?